page 65 in the Black Bibles around you. Starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrance, incense, onyx stone, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So you shall make it. Let's pray. Father God, we are a people that are hungry for presence. We're hungry for presence of another person, of another human being. We're hungry for the presence of community. And most importantly, and most acutely, we're hungry for your presence. Lord, you have made us to be in your presence and to be filled in your presence. And Lord, I'll venture that many in this room feel either cut off from your presence or maybe like they had your presence at one point but now have lost it. But Lord, you give Israel specific plans for a specific tabernacle that will communicate that you are persistently bringing your presence into this world and into our lives. And so, Lord, I pray right now that we might experience your presence through your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, you might be encouraging us to how you are persistently bringing your presence into this world, our lives, and into this moment right now. I pray that in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just prayed, we are a people that are completely focused around experiencing actual, tangible presence. And we're experiencing that more and more and understanding that more and more because we live in a digital age where presence is an option. You can have meetings with people all over the world and never actually step foot in their presence. You can go and travel and see sites of the world of which you could never see before or through Google Earth and maps and pictures. But there's something to actually standing in the presence of something. You know this acutely if you have spent any sense or any uh, period of time in long-distance relationships. I mean, you can Skype, you can FaceTime, you can be in the digital presence of a person, but it pales in comparison and actually looking across into their eyes, looking into their face, touching their hands, and feeling presence. I understand presence deeply just by understanding now as a parent that the biggest thing I can give my kids most days 
is just being present with them. I mean, when they get hurt, which having four kids, three of them being boys, is like on the minute. But every time they get hurt, what do they want to do? They want to come. They want to sit in my lap. They want to be held by me. They want to experience my presence. It can be healing for them. Another way that I've really noticed presence as being a particularly important theme in life, it's just by going to live concerts. I mean, you can go and hear any song in the world right now in your pocket for free by just listening to a couple ads or paying 15 bucks and you can hear it all for without the ads. And you have all that music, but yet you will shell out 50 bucks to go and be in the presence of the actual artist as they create the music. So why am I telling you this? For this reason. It's because we jumped last week back into our series in the book of Exodus. And in the first several sections, or the first several segments we walked through the book of Exodus, we walked through all the narrative of God coming to redeem his people out of slavery and make them his people. And as he does this, he finishes out the book with lists of laws, which we discussed last week, was his instructional teaching of how to be a people of justice and show his wisdom throughout all the world. And then you get these long lists of plans for a building project. And it seems like a waste of 20 minutes or an hour, however long you spend just reading through all these plans and looking through. It doesn't seem like the most exciting Bible reading. But ultimately what's going on is God is giving Israel the plans for what he calls the tabernacle. And the tabernacle literally comes from this word to dwell, to be in the presence of. And God says, hey, I want you, now that you're my people and now that I'm making a covenant with you, I want you to know my instructional teaching and I want you to live out my wisdom before the world. And also, I want you to construct a tent. I want you to make a physical room in which my presence will dwell with you. And I want you to carry it wherever you go. And that was important because at that time, People saw gods as dwelling not only in time and space, but also in a specific place in the world. That's why you had gods of mountains or gods of oceans or gods of regions, and you had different gods in different places, and you had temples for them. But this is God, Yahweh, who says, hey, I'm the God and the creator over everything, and so I want you, if you're going to have my presence with you, it's going to be mobile. It's going to go throughout the whole world and you are going to bring my presence with you to all of creation. And you think like, okay, this is weird because we talk about God's presence all the time in our culture. And we're like, well, God's everywhere. Like if you've been in church, that's something you probably have heard or know. God's presence is everywhere. And so why does he need a tent? It seems like a bunch of work to build this and to like fold it, like fold it up, carry it, reset it out. Well, God ultimately doesn't need a tent. But there's a few things that God is trying to hammer home to his people and to us by the building and the purpose of the tabernacle. And I just want to go through those briefly this morning in hopes of encouragement, in hopes of edification of our souls. And so let's just jump into the three things that I see 
of the purposes of what God is doing through the tabernacle. And here's the first one. The tabernacle was a declaration of God's persistence to be with his people. You read in verse, uh, or chapter 25, verse 8, God said, hey, this tabernacle, it's going to be a sanctuary. It's going to be a place where you're going to experience me. In verse 9, he calls it again the tabernacle, which is the word for to dwell or to be with. In 27, 21, he calls it the tent of meeting. He says there's going to be a relationship that exchanges here. When you're in a meeting, you're exchanging a relationship with someone. In 38, he calls it the tabernacle of the covenant. Again, the covenant was the relational terms between God and his people. I mean, regularly he's saying, hey, this space is to show that I am coming to be present with you. Because God ultimately desires to be present with us, and we ultimately find our fulfillment by being present with him. See, other creation stories of other gods did not have this sense of God trying to be present with their, or the gods trying to be present with people. In fact, most other creation narratives were just like the gods were hungry, and so they decide to make people to get them stuff to eat, to bring them sacrifices, to bring them bulls and goats, and to make their food, and to, and to fan them with palm branches. People are their servants. They're their slaves. But the God of the universe, when he says creation story, he says, no, I didn't make people because I needed stuff to eat. He said, no, I made people because here I existed as God who is one yet three, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all the time when we communicate this idea of the Trinity, it's the idea that God is three persons, but yet he's perfectly united as one, meaning that, yes, he's three, he's in community, but yet he's all completely in relationship with himself. And that is to say, he is complete and does not need our company to be fulfilled. Sometimes people have wrongly assumed, or I've heard that teaching throughout the idea of like, why does God create humanity? Because he wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to be, uh, he's lonely and he needs some people to hang out with. But ultimately God says, no, I am perfect as I am. I am beautiful. I am contained in three but one. And I can make beauty out of just who I am. But it's because of my unity and my enjoyment of myself, my gloriousness, that I decide I have to make, we have to make man and woman in our image to share with them our presence. The reason that you are made is not so that God can experience your presence. He ultimately does not need it. However, he so desires to share his that he makes you and decides, hey, I want to be with you. I want you to experience my presence. I want, you, I want to experience yours. It reminds me of times where my wife and I, sometimes in the morning, I'll come down about ready to leave for work, and we'll just have a moment where my wife, before we go, we'll just have a time where we hug. We just sit there in an extended embrace. It's a good thing. Married couples, go for that. Uh, And in that moment when I'm sitting there hugging my wife, we'll just sit there for maybe a minute or two. There's something I heard one time. I don't do it because of this, though I did hear there's something that speaks to the presence again about just physically connecting with someone for something about like a minute and a half that just increases a sense of joy and peace and connectedness between two people. So we'll just sit there and we'll just be in an extended embrace and all of a sudden 
we'll feel little hands come on our back and reach up and join the hug. And you look down, and it's one or multiple of my sons, and it's just like they see our unity. They see our joy. They see our oneness. And there's something about them that says, I need to be in this. I'm made to be in this. I'm made to be in that kind of relationship. That's God and the Trinity. In his oneness, in his unity, he creates us. And then he creates us to look at that and say, I need to be in that kind of unity with the God who made me. And so, in the garden, you see God creates man and woman and they walk with him in the cool of the garden. We don't know all that that means, but we know this. It means there was an unlimited presence between God and humanity. Of course, we know from being around church, and we talk about Genesis almost every week here, because so much of the scripture is just coming out of Genesis 1-3. through That only lasts for a short time before Adam and Eve decide, no, we want to be in control of our situation more than we want the presence of God. They ultimately reject the presence of God. And when they do that, it's weird again to say that because God's presence is everywhere, but his manifest presence, that tangible sense of being in his presence, they're banished from. In fact, God even sets up cherubim, which are creatures that says that to protect them from coming back into his presence because they are no longer able to be in his presence. It's dangerous to them. But God doesn't in that moment be like, okay, well, that was a bummer, and you guys made your choice, and he, get, he gets bitter, and he turns away from us. But rather, the rest of the scripture is a continual pursuit of God saying, I am persistent to be in the presence of my people. And that's why when he comes in Exodus, he says, hey, I want you to build a tent in which it is going to house my presence, and I am going to dwell with you in this world. <coughs> Have you ever thought about like why all the crazy specifications? I mean, it's going to talk about down to the measurement of what needs to be set up. Because here's how serious God is about setting up his presence with us. You realize he's giving specific plans because he's giving us his throne room. He says, hey, throne room in heaven I want you to recreate that here on earth in a way that you can in some way be connected to my throne room where I reside in perfection and holiness. That's why he's saying, hey, hey, collect all these gold, silver, bronze, purple, and uh, scarlet yarns, fine twisted linens, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood. I mean, all the finest things. Where do the people, by the way, just wandering out in the wilderness get all this? Well, if you read back in the Exodus, or you're with us back in the Exodus, you remember when they leave Egypt, they get to, just the Egyptians just give them their possessions, their belongings, because of the glory of God they see before them, and they just realize, man, we've got to send these people out, and here's our possessions. And so God gives them all these possessions. He says, hey, from the best of what you receive from Egypt, I want you to create a throne room before you so that you might be able to be connected into my throne room. When I think about the throne room of God, I think about a couple different pictures of it because ultimately we haven't seen it. We, were not, we haven't seen the tabernacle, but we have seen pictures of the throne room in Scripture. I think of Revelation 4. 
can turn there with me if you'd like. You get a picture of the throne room of God. Revelation 4, it says this. This is John who receives a vision from heaven, and he receives a vision of the throne room. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what it must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, uh, there was as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down for him who is seated on their throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns saying, uh, before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. There's a lot going on here in this picture of the throne room of God, but I want you to notice one thing particularly. That these creatures and these 24 elders 24-7 are sitting there screaming out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. Worthy are you. And these 24 elders, they get physical with it. They're falling down and casting their crowns and bowing before God because there's something about this desire for us to be in the presence of something completely transcendent and glorious. I mean, that's why you go on vacations to mountains and oceans. That's why you go to live concerts. So you can experience something that is transcendent and worshipful. It's why you watch epic movies. It's why you pursue art. It's why you listen to music in the first place. There's something in us that wants to be in the presence of something glorious, even just a good meal where we have to just drop the fork and say like, holy cow, that is good. Because we are designed to be in the presence of something all-encompassingly beautiful, all-encompassingly transcendent. But what's interesting is we have such an awe problem. We talked about this last time we were in Exodus. We have such an awe problem that if you could just think of the most transcendent experience you've ever had, the most amazing meal you've ever had, the most amazing concert you've ever been to, the most amazing film you've ever seen, the most amazing artwork you've stood in the presence of, the most amazing sexual experience that you've ever experienced. Whatever has led you to the deepest level of worship in your life, what do you think of that experience if you have to experience that 24-7 over and over and over again? How much does that meal become repulsive, that film become tiresome, that song, that piece of work, that sexual experience, it's not enough. But yet God is 
a glorious, transcendent presence that these creatures and these elders never grow tired. There's something about them that says, all I am and all I desire is to be in your presence and declare who you are and to exist in harmony with your unity, with your soul. We're made to be in the presence of God. And the tabernacle is a reminder that he has a persistence to be with his people. Secondly, we see this. The tabernacle is a reminder to Israel that he was bringing his redeeming presence through Israel. Again, you read about all the details. It's made with gold and precious jewels and made with exact specifications. It's ordered. It's beautiful. It's filled with light. I mean, there's all these lamps around it. It's meant to just exude light from it. Not only that, but then if you kind of read further in the instructions on the tabernacle, you're going to read about things where it's going to say, hey, there's going to be these golden and blazed flowers and almond blossoms. And all of a sudden you realize it's all this imagery of a garden. And not just any garden, but the garden. That the tabernacle is not just a depiction of God's throne room, but God's throne room is also a reflection of the garden. You're like, Kent, like, are you trying to just like read in crazy things right here? Like, you know, almond blossoms and all of a sudden that's supposed to be the Garden of Eden. Well, what about the fact that seven times throughout Exodus, the back half, when God is describing what the tabernacle should look like, seven times it says, then God said to Moses, make it like this. Then God said, do this. And it harkens back to the creation narrative where seven times God says, then God said, let there be, and there was. He says, hey, if you create this tabernacle, you're creating a little section of the garden back here on earth. And ultimately, the garden itself when it was made was a small section of beauty and order and perfection and light that was then meant to be taken and spread across the entire world. That's the cultural mandate you get in Genesis when God says, hey, I am going to, I've made this beautiful ordered section of the world and now I want you to take it and take it forward and make the rest of the world look like this. And of course, because sin tarnished our ability to do that, now God is re-entering with another section of the garden and he says, hey, I want you to carry this around with you so that all people, when they see it, will see you carrying this beautiful, ordered, light-giving presence and recognize in a dark and wicked and broken world that that is a place where God exists. And God has not abandoned this world, but he is still coming into this world, and he's coming into the presence of this people. I mean, that was why he gave the law that we talked about last week. He said, hey, I'm going to give you instructional teaching of how to show the world everything that I'm supposed to be like, so that when people see you, they will see what I'm like. They will see what's coming for this world. And ultimately, we see this when we, when we look at that, that as Christians, we look at the world and we don't watch the news and get despairing like the rest of the world. Because ultimately, we know that God's story is a redemption story, and he will bring his kingdom into this world. That yes, sin, and yes, political bombast and yes screaming back and forth seems like it's moving towards a point where like we just never going to solve things and things are just going to go further and further out of control however we know that god's story is saying hey i'm bringing the kingdom first i was bringing it through 
the creation story that you were supposed to take out and that failed, but I didn't stop there. I come back in the presence of a tabernacle and I show that my presence will come back in this world and you're going to take that around to the nations as a declaration that I've not given up on creating my garden, my perfection, my order, my beauty. And even as that was then done away with by Israel not faithfully bringing the presence of God, then eventually you get Jesus showing up and saying, hey, I'm bringing in the kingdom as small as a mustard seed. And it's going to continue to go out through a church that starts small, but it's going to spread all throughout the world. That's why we talk about it Soma all the time. We're very concerned about being a part of the mission of God. That we come, and part of our vision is that it says that the gospel changes everything. And that's not just the gospel for our personal lives, that we're forgiven because of the blood of Jesus and because of the resurrection of Jesus, so that's true. But it's also that the gospel comes out of our lives and then changes everything around us. We become those who are bringing in the peace and the perfection and the order and the beauty of God's perfect gospel and perfect kingdom. That's why we say all the time, we want to be not just a part of building a great church, we want to be a part of building a great city. We want to be a part of building great neighborhoods. We want to be a part of building a great department of philosophy, if that's what you study. We want to be a part of building a great IT department. We want to be a part of building great schools. We want to be a part of building great city blocks. Because the gospel changes everything, and as it changes people, then we become those who carry in the peace and the kingdom of God into this world. Usually not through big, sweeping political movements, but typically through small individual relationships, through little everyday gospel intentionality and mission. And I say that to a group of people who I know a lot of you are like in the throes of like small kids. And you're like, I would love to be a part of changing the world, but right now like I'm just trying to like make it to the end of the day, like with relative sanity. And I'm not laying something heavy on you. I'm saying ultimately part of bringing in the gospel and changing everything is also you building investing into your family. Building investing into your, the neighbor just next door or some relationship or something. Building investing into the school that your kids are a part of. It can be huge and it can be robust and it also can be small and simple, but we want to be people that are relentlessly bringing in the presence of God redemptively into the world. Big and small ways in different seasons of life. And then last, the tabernacle is a reminder. First, the tabernacle is a reminder of God's persistence to be in our presence. Second, it was a reminder uh, uh, Israel and we are bringing in the redeeming presence uh, through, uh, or bringing in God's redeeming presence through us. And then last, the tabernacle is a reminder that sin has made us enemies to God's presence. Sin enters the world through humanity, and we find ourselves completely shut out of the presence of God. Again, cherubim lock us away from it because it now becomes dangerous to us. And then you see humanity spin out of control. Donald Monstrum says this, We are healthy in the deepest and widest sense of the world only if we are in fellowship with our God, like an intricate machine designed for a particular use. But used for something else, we break down in a variety of ways when not functioning with God. I mean, that's ultimately the story of humanity, is that without God, we break down. 
and not just we break down personally through anxiety, depression, through all sorts of physical ailments that you feel and all the things that are going on that death enters into life, but we break down through sin, breaking down all sense of like trust and relationship and community and, and all society. It always continually breaks down without the presence of God. And so God comes and he says, hey, I'm going to reestablish my presence, which is good news. But the tabernacle ultimately says it looks a little different, though. It's not the garden where it's just like unfiltered, unbridled presence of God and humanity walking together in the cool of the garden. This time, he says, hey, I want you to make a tent. And around that tent, you're going to have a gate. And inside that tent, you're going to have a veil within the tent to put my presence in there. In fact, you're even going to make, if you read the instructions, small emblems of the cherubim to remind you of my presence is here and it's dangerous to you because people are going to be away from the cherubim, away from the veil, away from the tent, away from the, from the courtyard around the tent and you're going to camp around it because you're meant to be as close to my presence as you possibly can but you can't get that close. And once a year, the high priest would go into the courtyard and perform sacrifices to sacrifice on behalf of his sin and the sin of the people. And then he would go into the next room and he would be washed and cleansed and try to just symbolize the fact that you are scarred by death and sin. And then as he's washed and cleansed and sacrificed, then he steps in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God. But as he did that, they would tie a rope to his leg and put a bell on it just in case the presence of God showed up in such a way that it killed him regardless of all those precautions taken. And then they would be like, well, we can't go in, so we'd just drag him out by the rope. And all of this is communicating that there is a dangerousness now to the presence of God. Not because he's wicked and evil, but because he's so good. Because he's so life-giving that our presence, which has death and darkness and wickedness still in it, cannot handle to be in his presence. And so, Israel is given the instructions of saying, hey, Here's how you're to live in a way that's going to reflect my presence, but they never do it. In fact, the tabernacle, eventually they build it into brick and mortar and make it the temple. And the temple was supposed to be where people come and receive all manner of... I mean, that's, the, the temple was where they would distribute social justice, distribute funds for the poor, but instead it becomes a place where just priests take all the money and get rich and drunk with wine. <coughs> And sin continually enters into their midst and shows that we are unable to be the righteous people who can enter into the presence of God. Which is true of your life and mine. It's not just Israel, but it's us too. I mean, the amount of selfishness that I'm continuing to observe in my life, the amount of brokenness that you're experiencing, don't rush past the fact that we are a people completely on sin and walking away from God's life-giving teaching and life-giving presence. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up 
And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it describes Jesus as the word that was at the beginning with God and creation and who was God. But then it says, hey, Jesus shows up one day and it's God himself moving in and dwelling with us. Or it's where we get the word tabernacling with us. And all of a sudden, here is this man who is also the fullness of the presence of God. And he's showing us what God is like. The Bible says to see Jesus, to look at Jesus, to read about Jesus, is to see what God is like. Nobody's seen what God is like. But if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And then as he brings in his presence to the world, he brings in life. I mean, people touch him and they get healed. Those who are possessed by demons come into his presence and demons flee. Those who have disease and death it can't exist with him. One of my most favorite mental images is what someone gave me of Jesus in the book of Matthew. He said, hey, you want to know what Jesus is like in the book of Matthew? It's like the world is completely covered with snow and ice. And Jesus shows up in every step he takes. When he lifts his foot, rather than snow, the snow has melted and grass and flowers and trees and life peer up. And he walks around people who are frozen in ice. And as he touches them, they thaw, melt, and come back alive. It's like he's bringing his kingdom and all the fullness of presence of God that we were meant to have and have been broken down with not having is getting restored instantly. And not only that, he says really curious things like a time where he visits the temple. And this was a temple that uh, Israel had built after they had gone into exile in their original temple, which was, the, again, the establishment of the tabernacle in a permanent place. Once that all got burned down in the exile, they get back after the exile and they decide, hey, we're going to try to reestablish the temple. And they'd been working on it for two generations. They'd not even quite finished it. They'd been working on it about 100 years. And Jesus shows up to it and says, hey, if you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And, of course, he's saying that not because he's actually going to reconstruct the temple, because he's saying, hey... If you tear me down, I'll be rebuilt in three days. Because this temple where you think you experience the presence of God is ultimately pales in comparison to what is now before you. Because now the fullness of God is here, but he also dwells with us intimately. I mean, he sits down with the woman at the well, a woman who is caught in sexual sin, who's a slave to it, and he has a relationship with her. He invites her into the family of God. He sits down with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, one who's known for making profit off of his own people, and he has, has a meal with him. He has relationship with him. He is the fullness of God, but yet the fullness of being in our presence. And then, of course, the story of him talking about them tearing him down actually does happen because he is killed Partially because he said things like, if you tear down the temple, I can rebuild it in three days. And he's messing with the religious structure. And when you have a lot of priests that are uh, corruptively getting rich off of a temple structure, you're going to raise some attention when you talk about tearing that all down because something better than that is here now. And so he gets himself crucified. But it wasn't just crucified off of these people who wanted to get rid of him. Rather, it says this was the uh, pre uh, preordained will of God that he would become the sacrifice of all sin so that the moment Jesus dies 
I don't know if you've read this in, in the, one of the gospel accounts. I forget which one. I'll look it up for the next gathering. But in one of the gospel accounts, the moment Jesus dies, the veil that's in the temple, the veil from the tabernacle, which was to separate the holy of holies, the, the direct presence of God, tears from top to bottom. As if to say, now because of the sacrifice of Jesus, God's presence can be fully back unleashed into the world. Because now the Spirit of God is no longer hazardous because God has paid for the sin of the world. And so, not only is that presence of God released in the death of Jesus, but then it's also released in the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus goes away, he says, hey, I'm going, but I'm not just taking the presence of the Father back up with me. I'm going to leave it here with all who believe in me so that you might experience my presence in a deep and tangible way by my spirit dwelling within you. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 and 17 says this, do you know that you are God's te- or do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Ultimately now the presence of God in you, Christian. If you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus, if Jesus has redeemed you and his gospel is now, it's no longer you trying to make yourself right with God, but you ultimately trust the fact that God, that Jesus has paid for your sin in full, that means that the spirit of God has come in and is moving out of life through you so that you literally are the presence of God. A lot of implications I'd like to make about that, um, but I only have time for a couple. One is this. That's why we talk so much about being formed here into the image of Jesus. Because ultimately, if we are the presence of God, if we are the temple of God, then similarly when they built the tabernacle, we don't have all this license to just build it any way we want. Rather, he's saying, no, I'm going to build and shape you and instruct you to be a people that shows my presence into all the world so that people will actually experience me and my life through you. And so that's why we come and we're doing spiritual formation mini-series. That's why we're finding ways to like practice the presence of God, practicing Sabbath, silence, solitude, prayer, scripture reading, justice and reconciliation, because we want to be continually a people that's forming ourselves into reflecting the temple and the presence of God. I also say this. It's why we make such a big deal about coming and gathering together here on Sundays and in our missional communities. Because if we are the presence of God, when we gather together, we're literally gathering the presence of God into one condensed place. And so that's why sometimes you come in here on a Sunday or you come into your missional community and you actually find a restorative presence by being with other people, other believers, because they actually are embodying the presence of God to you. It's why when you show up to your missional community, I, I hope you primarily don't show up in a sense of just like, well, I want to just like, you know, try to get something out of this, but rather I come to embody the presence of God to these people. When you show up on Sunday, we come here and we don't just come to like uh, check something off the list, but rather we show up to embody the presence of God to one another. Because God's presence is being felt tangibly and it's through you and through every other Christian here in this room.
we come together, we come to encourage each other in the presence of God that we have within us through the Spirit. And lastly, as I've already made mention of, we bring the presence of God, not just in this room or in our missional community, in a life that we're gathered together, but then we scatter out into our neighborhoods, we scatter out into our workplaces, and we are a part of bringing the presence of God into this world by bringing his kingdom. And so it happens in big and small ways, but I would ask you, no matter what season of life you're in, whether it's you bring the presence of God into your family or you being single and bringing the presence of God into a, a nonprofit organization in big or small ways, I mean, whatever it is, we gather together and then we scatter out to be those who are filling this world with the kingdom because God is persistent about being in presence with his people, and he's decided ultimately to do that in this chapter of the world, this chapter of the church, through you, through me, and through our communities together. And so let's come as ones who are, if you are a believer, if you are uh, one who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, let's commune with our God in that spirit by taking of communion. Communion is Jesus on the night before he's betrayed and dies a death for uh, the sin of all the world to release his spirit into the world and release the presence of God, takes bread and breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes a cup of wine, he pours it, and he says, this is my blood spilled for you. And as you take of these things, you'll actually commune with my presence, actually be in my presence. And as in the spirit you're filled with my presence, I will then send you out to take that presence out into the world and out into the lives of others. And so we'll have stations around the room. We'll have uh, gluten-free up here to my right and your left if you need that. Let's pray. Father God.